Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks podcast. I am your host Ben Kreider and today I'm going to be giving you guys recaps on the Blue and Thunder games that we saw on Friday. Now I know a lot of you guys may not be huge Blue listeners so I'm probably going to tend to make some of these like exclusive to my website. It's kylesingler4mvp.com. I need a new domain name. Please give me suggestions because I know this one's super, super weird, but you know, it is what it is. I've been posting on there, do all the blue games, all the Thunder game recaps, and then sprinkle in some uh, one-off articles that maybe you do not hear on the podcast. But yeah, pretty cool stuff going on on that thing. Anyways, just talking about the blue game briefly though, they barely lost to the Austin Spurs um, yesterday. And it's kind of ridiculous because they were down as much as 26 points in this game. And they were up with like a minute left. But then they uh, end up choking it away, get down by three points. But it's real crazy. I mean, you lose out on Ty Jerome. You had to fill in the gaps with um, Xavier Simpson. You had Jalen Horde, Rob Edwards. Rob Edwards and Horde, they actually were the guys who had to fill in. And they didn't actually play particularly well. I think both them shot 3 of 10 on the game. And Rob Edwards, who is a straight-up marksman, I said in this game preview that I thought Rob Edwards was going to break out. I think I said something along the lines of that. I thought that Rob Edwards probably would have led the team in scoring. He was just not there. This is probably his worst game in the entire bubble so far. He missed on every single one of his threes. He shot five of them. Really could not get in sync. He had some nice layups inside. I'll give him that. But for the first start, he just wasn't in sync. And I don't know if maybe he just works better off the bench or whatever, but he had looks. They just were not dropping for him. And the same was going for Jalen Horde. I mean, you kind of know what you get in a guy like him. He's really just about attacking the basket. And I think that's something that was a little bit interesting was he actually got this starting gig over Pokachevsky at the power forward spot. I, uh, I I honestly did not expect that. I think maybe what they were testing out, Antonius Cleveland, he's at the three, and I guess Pogachevsky's shown enough, so want to maybe slow him down for the next game. They have a pretty strong contest against the Delaware Bluecoats, so I don't know. Maybe there were some sort of schematics going on. Rest Pogachevsky, throw in um, Horde here, but he didn't really play that much. He only played 19 minutes. 3 of 10, 0 of 3 from downtown. It's just all about attacking the basket for Horde. And he got 10 points off it because he does get to the line a lot. But it wasn't like the insane efficiency we've seen him at before. All these buckets that he's getting, kind of chippy chippy shots. Whenever you know he's contested by these uh, Spurs players, it really was a tough time. And that kind of was just a theme surrounding the uh, whole entire group, especially from downtown. They shot just 8 of 35 from deep. That is horrendous. That's 22.9% from there. And on the flip side, I mean, the Austin Spurs, they shot almost 40% from downtown. They went 16 of 41. So the three, it was a big deal. And I think the OKC Blue kind of pressed the issue with their starting lineup. And that's ultimately what ended up hurting them. The Spurs, this was a curveball, and I did not expect this. I thought that they were going to roll out a traditional five to go up with Moses Brown, but that's not what happened at all. They ran a straight-up small ball lineup. Their center, he was shooting a three a ton. He ended up shooting like four of them, and from mid-range, he was unstoppable. And everyone surrounding him was amazing. These were some undersized, like, six-foot-six guys, and Robert Woodard II, who he's actually playing for the Kings, but 
since they don't have a G League, he's with them. Anyways, he killed it. He had 17 points and 12 rebounds in a small forward, power forward role. And right next to him at the other forward spot, they had Cameron Reynolds, who was dominating. He had 13 points on 5 of 19 shooting. Big part, though, 3 of 8 from deep. So they had so many guys just kind of lighting it up. And whenever they got in their cold spots, the blue, they, they got their act together when necessary, but it never was from deep. And actually, you know, I would give up the argument that the bench actually just straight up outperformed the starters in this game for the OKC Blue because the because the bench had four of their six double-digit scores, including the point leader. And this is probably the first time of the season. But Omer Yurt7 probably outplayed Moses Brown in this game. Yurt7 had 11 points, 6 rebounds, and an assist on 18 minutes. Does it on 8 of 11 shooting. So he was just great here. Moses Brown on the flip side, he had 16 points, so right behind him, 4 of 6 from the field, so that's good, and 4 of 6 from the free throw line, got 8 rebounds, so he doesn't get the double-double here, looks like a good stat line on paper, but he seriously could not get anything to go for him, he was so just furious, whenever they got smoked in the first and second quarters, there was no life from him, he was just chucking up shots, getting visibly angry, I mean, he, he kind of collected himself when necessary. However, the whole entire plan from the get-go with the Spurs was stop Moses Brown, you suffer the consequences. They didn't really have any pushback from that. So that's why they ended up winning. Moses Brown, if he got the ball, the first mode, mode of uh, operations here was just swarming him. And if he was trying to go up for a shot, you just smack him. And it ended up working because at the line, he's not that great. He's like a 50% free throw shooter. Shoots 66% here. And when those four free throws can equal one, two, or three, all those were, um, I believe, two points. So so he gets eight points there. But you may, you might as well just make him earn it. And I think it was a great strategy employed by them. It's just the smart nature of things, kind of assessing things. Like uh, Moses Brown is one of the best of the best. And the only way to stop him is kind of hacking him. So I totally get where they were going there. And I mean, just swatting the ball from him i mean he had five turnovers and he also had a charge off of everyone just getting active being ready because you know when moses brown's going inside he's gonna give you a bit of an elbow back you down and get the shot up they know that so they forced him into making those opportunities there was even a 50 50 call that went in favor of brown where it was a blocking foul looked like a charge but they gave it to brown anyway so this was definitely his hardest game of the year Hopefully, he's able to bounce back from this. I'm really excited in what Yurt7 did, though, because Yurt7, he's not this kind of down-low, all-the-time center like Moses Brown is. You're never going to find Moses Brown standing outside. And if he is, the defense is never going to respect him because he just doesn't shoot. Yurt7, to an extent, he shoots. He shoots the mid-range, and he shoots at the top of the key. So he had a mid-range shot as well as a top-of-the-key three. He splashed them both down, and those were only two shots he made there, but he kind of hung around the perimeter for a good chunk of the 18 minutes he was playing, so it gravitated these centers out, and it allowed for much more activity, and that's why the bench played just infinitely better. Once the starters got plugged back in down the stretch of this game, it was evident there was a clear problem, because they just were not able to be efficient at all, because when they have so many shooters just scrunched into the starting unit. I'm talking Rob Edwards specifically. I think Antonius Cleveland, he's kind of just sharpshooter. So him, 
Pokachevsky was in for the final minutes. He was not making his threes. He only shot one of seven from down there. So, you know, their game plan just wasn't working. And honestly, if I was Coach Gibbs, I probably would just let the bench run with it because they were that hot. They got them right into the game, got them exactly where necessary, and they got killed once both starting units came in. It's just a tale of two different stories you have here. OKC Blue Bench dominant starters, not so great, and ended up kind of hitting them in the behind. But anyways... Outside of those people, I mean, Vincent Edwards was great. I think he is one of the guys who kind of dug a little bit into Ty Jerome's minutes. He only played 23 minutes, and he put up 14 points. One of the only guys who was making his shots from downtown. He had four of the team's eight triples in this game. It only took him six shots to do it. Very consistent from him. I mean, Purdue guy, I think he's like 24 now, so I don't know if he would ever be with the Thunder. But maybe, I mean, if a team needs a shooter, this is kind of a one-off thing. Like, we have not seen a lot of Vincent Edwards. But if they might need a shooter, hey, maybe give him a call. I don't know. I think there's probably other people like Antonius Cleveland who may have a little bit more of a resume to him. But Vincent Edwards, he's kind of been stuck in these lower-level leagues trying to get some minutes. He finally gets it here, and now he looks pretty solid. So maybe he can follow it up with another performance against the Bluecoats. They played Phil Booth, and I don't know if this is like the first time we've seen action from him, but he was picked up in replacement of Chasson Randall, and I think he just got stashed. I don't know what happened. He played for the Wizards last season. I don't know if he was like with the Go-Go or whatever, but he's with them right now. He only played five minutes, didn't really do much, but I just thought kind of a cool thing to sprinkle in there ryan woolridge was amazing he had 11 points to go with 11 assists first time we've really seen him as a dominant ball handler he took the role right out of simpson's hands and i think he may have just straight up outperformed him i mean when it came down to assists, simpson was pretty much blank he only had three and you know he actually fouled out of the game in a matter of 23 minutes so he had a he could have had a much better game i'd say same goes a lot of starters. But yeah, I loved Woolridge. Very, very athletic here. And for Pokachevsky, he had his moments. He had some very clutch string of plays in the fourth. Had a block and followed it up with a steal in the very next possession. None of those netted blue points, but you know, whatever. Also hit a big three-pointer in the final minutes of the game. But I think the play that people may pin Pokachevsky to was his final shot because he did take the game winner. Ended up hitting back iron, so it was no good. I like seeing Pokachevsky trying to step up in some major roles, though. And there are a lot of guys who um, maybe don't have major roles with the Thunder who did completely amazing in their game. And I'm just going to go straight into that one. So, for the Thunder game, I mean, the expectations were kind of up in the air. Like, in my opinion, I didn't really know what to expect because you got Diallo out, you bring Ty Jerome back in, how is Jerome going to perform with the team, yada yada yada, you don't have Al Horford, you got Isaiah Roby going up against Clint Capella, the best rebounder in the NBA, if Canner's putting up 23 on him, what is Capella going to do, and then you topple that with John Collins up against Baisley, Baisley's cold, Collins, he's on fire, he can get you so many points in such a little span of time, and then you got Trey Young too, so a lot of these flaming hot players 
And then you even finish it off with former Thunder player Gallinari, who had 39 in the game before. And the Thunder, they stepped up to the challenge because they won this game 118 to 109. Very impressive performance from them. And, you know, it's great that they were able to kind of get their act together because at the beginning of this game, it didn't really seem like much was going on for them because, you know, you have a clear size deficiency. Clint Capella scored the first six points in this game and just paint activity killed them. I think in the first, at one point, they were down in the rebound battle 13 to 3. This was the first seven minutes, I just checked, but yeah, first seven minutes. Atlanta out-rebounds OKC 13-3, and Clint Capella had eight of those. But right as that happened, you know who the Thunder plugged in? They plugged in Ty Jerome. He suits up, and he just balls out for them. He had four assists in the first quarter. You know what he averaged with the Blue this season? 3.2 assists on 24.2 minutes a game. So he instantly already snaps that. And he was just finding every look necessary, getting buckets in. They were only down two points heading into quarter number two, and they kept just going right at the Atlanta Hawks. They were up eight points by halftime, and it was because they were shooting so well. Second quarter, 67% from the floor. Hawks, just 43%. So that's all you really need to know there. And they were just passing the ball around. Teo Maladone, Ty Jerome, dynamic duo. He was a big reason why there were 19 assists on the board through the first half. 70% of their field goals came assisted, and it was it was really fun to watch, especially seeing guys like Teo and Ty Jerome finally get some big roles, and just how they were harmonizing together was really amazing, especially when you're talking, you don't even have Al Horford. You got Isaiah Roby on there. You're getting going up against some of the biggest, best guys in the league at the center, and they were just flawlessly ripping right through the defense, so I loved how just active they were as a squad and I think something that was funny like this was literally a game of two halves because the first half um the OKC Thunder they had their sunset jerseys on you know orange Hawks they have their red jerseys on there was like no color difference at all and I'm very surprised that Chris Fisher actually spoke up about this it took the announcing crew like 20 minutes to finally address the fact that there was a problem but I'm I'm shocked he did because he seems like the most conservative commentator in the world like I think he doesn't really have any crazy takes he just kind of picks things down in like a really I don't, I don't know how to put it but he just breaks things down like really simplified uses really similar catchphrases all the time like I've heard this man say naked threes probably 100 times this week totally cool but he just doesn't really branch out and like complain about anything so I think this is the first time he's really gotten mad I don't think he was mad but he he clearly was like asking the league like what is going on and he got support from Michael Cage on that one too but yeah I mean you hardly could tell what was going on there were some alley-oop plays that just went to the complete opposite team and it started buckets it's actually for the thunder so you take it but yeah, just very confusing stuff was going on the entire time. Finally had to switch it. I mean, the league called them and was like complaining. So originally, like how it works, home team picks their jersey and then the road team, they bounce back off that. So so the Thunder, they picked the orange jersey and that means 
for the Hawks, they got to go with like their black jersey or just their white jersey, whatever color. They pick a red one, and somehow the league just doesn't care. I don't know if it's like they never look into what happens with the Thunder organization because, I mean, they don't. They don't get nationally televised games, and clearly they don't double-check jersey stuff because it was really, really weird. Hawks, they didn't have a second uniform, so the Thunder, even though they deserved to have the orange jersey, they had to swap into their normal white jerseys, so yeah, I mean, that happened. Didn't really affect their play whatsoever because they got on a 17-5 run during the third and pushed their lead up as high as 16, and it even ended all off. Mike Muscala buried a 30-footer to close out the third quarter, so they looked like they were pretty comfortable when it came to um, the final quarter of this game, and there really was not much action. I mean, the Atlanta Hawks, they quietly had a 10-4 run, so they got it down to double digits, but the Thunder, they kept retaliating, kind of a matter of just them not having enough time. Darius Baisley just posterized John Collins in like the final two minutes, that was the silencer, I think, to be quite honest with you. And once that happened, it, it was done. I mean, Thunder win this game, end up advancing to 14 and 19 on the year. Same with the Atlanta Hawks. Thing is, Western Conference, much better than the Eastern Conference. So the Thunder, they're sitting at the 12th seed right now, and they're actually half a game back from the 11th. So they may keep moving. I don't know how to feel as, like, like as a fan. Clearly, you want the best lottery odds, and with a not-so-difficult schedule, they could continue to rise. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of aspirations on lottery stuff. They're doing well. As a fan, you can't really be complaining. It's just in the back of your head, like, what's going to happen in the lottery? You just see how things play out. I don't know. Atlanta, I mean, they want to win, and they had a lot of injuries in this one. They didn't have Cam Reddish. They didn't have DeAndre Hunter didn't have Chris Dunn in this game, just people like that, so it did hurt them, also they didn't have Bogdanovich either, so they kind of had a dumbed down roster, they put up a good fight, just was not good enough for them, they're in the 11 seed right now, so they still have a chance to move into the play-ins, probably wish they uh, kind of come out with a victory in the game though, I think when you look at this one, just national media, all they're going to care about is this jersey mishap, because yeah, I mean, it was pretty funny. Luckily for me, I mean, I knew kind of what was going on, but I mean, I'm, I was close to my TV, so if you're like far away, it probably would be hard to decipher. Glad they changed it out, but the main story as a Thunder fan, it's Ty Jerome and Teo Maladone. Ty Jerome, he comes in here fresh off a G League game on Wednesday, and he just straight up dominated. He struck a chord instantly with everyone on the team, finding the open player, he ended up scoring 9 points on 4 of 7 from this game, he had 5 rebounds and 7 assists to go along with 2 steals, and as someone who's watched every single blue game this season, I'm a little bit surprised, but not crazy surprised, because I was thinking about it, and here's kind of the conclusion I came to, I'm specifically talking about the assists here, like, Jerome... He's a good passer. However, in the G League with the blue, it's a very set offense here because there's no fluctuation when it comes to the Robies and the Muscalas. Those are two guys who can give you time spending out on the perimeter, 
and it just leaves wide open isolation plays and backdoor cuts. Moses Brown and Yurt Seven really don't give that much leeway. Yurt Seven gives like a little bit, but it's not near enough to consistently run like five out offense, if you know what I mean. Like they will give up a Yurt Seven shot. Roby, they will, but you still have to clog them up because if you let them drive right inside, it creates absolute havoc for them. And with Muscala, you actually just need to guard on every play. So when he's driving into the basket, he's very slow. And what it leads to is he's able to kind of just read what is going on. He reads the room very well. When he comes off these screens, he's always looking to pass the basketball first. And that's how you saw players like Kenrich Williams get in in the mix. He had 15 points almost solely off of cutting. And those assists, I mean, he got those 15 points off of the Jeromes and the Maladones of the world. So he was looking everywhere to kick the ball out. And once he found, found the right option, he just easily gives it up. A lot of these assists for him came in the fast break. And he's like the Kyle Anderson. I always mention it, but he seriously is. He's the guy, he kind of reminds me of that. Like, as a guard, a bit faster than Kyle Anderson, but he's definitely really slow for the position. So he just waits. And, you know, when you have a one on three, you don't really need to be all that angsty about it. Like, take your time, make sure you get the good passes off. He just waits there. And, you know, like when you hesitate, to shoot like a three or something, you wait like five seconds, even if you suck at shooting, the defender's just gonna go up to you anyways. That's kind of what happens with Jerome, so he just waits around the elbow, and then the defender starts kind of sneaking up, thinking maybe someone will help. No one helps. Dump it inside. That's two points. Did that like three times, and a lot of it came in the first half, so he sets the tone, keeps it going. He's active on the glass. I mean, he even found himself for an offensive rebound in this game, and it's just because the ball was coming right towards him, and on defense, he wanted to go over there and grab it, so I think the change of pace really just was a shock, because you have Moses Brown, and you're at seven, doing all those duties, now there's not a clear cut, oh, here's your role, here's your role, no, it's positionless basketball, and that's something that was even stressed in the post game. Like, Mark Dagnall was just saying, you can plug this guy anywhere and he'll put work in. Whenever he was playing for the Blue, pretty much his position was, hey, you shoot the basketball from three. If not, you work down low off of Moses Brown screens. I don't know what the game plan was with Jerome, but he definitely was not limited to just one different thing. There were so many different aspects of his game that we saw where, you know, you would see it in spurts with the Blue, but you never saw it all combined. And I think this was just a perfect match of everything. He even showed off his deep range shot. Like he went one of three, but they were all pretty far out shots, like limitless range shots. And he did that like every time he played with the blue. So he made a really impressive debut. I think everyone who has not watched him is probably going crazy. This is something where, yeah, I I'm definitely like really happy. Um, he showed everything, but I didn't know he'd like transfer up so well. And it's one game, but I do think there could be some consistency here when we're talking about Ty Jerome in the long run. Something that will go unnoticed though, are those two steals that he picked up. Like he was a steal master. He averaged 1.1 in the G League and he's just always looking to make certain plays and he goes for the loose balls. That's what he did in the game against Atlanta. He goes for those always kind of hunting to pick your pocket clean. 
That's what he ends up doing, and that's not a fluke. He's not going to just have a two-steal game and never get any again. He's going to be consistent. I'd say if he continues to play 24 minutes, he probably should stay around that 1.1 steal range. I'm not joking. I think that point-wise, I don't know how well it might hold up. He's a three-point guy, but it doesn't always work. I mean, he's a little inconsistent. Driving in is more of his bread and butter, trying to work out with like a, a runner or just kicking out. He's a passer first, shooter second. That's just how it is. I'm very glad to see Jerome playing so well, and I hope that, you know, even once Diallo comes back, he's going to have a role. And if George Hill's like done for sure, he probably should still be getting minutes. Just need to take away from some of the other people who end up sparing some time here, like um, the Justin Jacksons of the world. He had 14 minutes. Williams had 25, but I like him kind of playing around that area. I don't know. I think you just need to chip out minutes to make sure Jerome can continue to play. This whole thing that I was saying, like maybe he comes back down to the blue, it's probably out the window now that we saw him perform like this. Like, sure, the blue, playing for the blue would be great, but he's he played such a good first game. You almost don't want to bring him back down because you almost get this like confidence hit if he goes back down and he has another 2 for 10 performance again. You know what I mean? You don't need to do that. Mark Dagnall, you can just keep him up. I want to watch more Rob Edwards anyways, so I would be cool with him staying with the Thunder for the long run here. Teo Maladone, I mean, he was an option to go to Orlando. I think Dagnall discussed like him and Roby as potential options. They both said no, or, well, they didn't say no. I think the coaching staff just said, hey, they can probably just play in the NBA right now definitely can because he comes in and ties another record again for rookies 12 assists on the night to pair along with 13 points shooting wise it wasn't amazing 4 of 11 2 of 6 from downtown but who cares we're looking at the assists right here he tied a rookie record from russell westbrook now this is just in the franchise this is just in the franchise but that still is huge I think I read online somewhere, last person to average 10 assists or drop a 10 assist game as a rookie in a Thunder uniform was Eric Maynard. So it's been a very, very long time since this has happened, and you're getting it from a second round pick. Absolutely crazy. Pretty obvious now, this guy's a steal. Like, who would let this guy slide this far? I don't know. I, I keep saying he's a top three passer in the class, and... As it is right now, I mean, he has the most assists in a game for rookies so far. No one else has gotten 12 or more except for him. LaMelo, he might be on the doorstep. I think he's gotten a triple-double, but he's not gotten over 12, man. So he is looking ahead of the all the picks. He's looking ahead of the number three pick who everyone was raving about. Maybe need to get on Maladone's level. I don't know. His passing is absolutely crazy, though. Like, he didn't even show a ton of jump passes. And jump passes, that's his bread and butter. Across the court jump passes, where he sees movement from someone who should be defending the corner, it, it always works. And he, he did it so well to start out the year. Didn't have to do it against Atlanta. What he was doing instead, he was kind of following what Jerome was doing, where you don't have anyone in the paint, and you're not as ISO-heavy as Shea. So just kind of... Maneuver yourself in there and let stuff kind of come into fruition. Maladone does that. Maladone's faster than Jerome. Now, 
Maladon's not this crazy fast point guard, but he's kind of grown on me. He's not as slow as I originally kind of made him out to be. So he gets down there, and he has a very deadly runner floater, whatever you want to call it. So he already brings the attention to him, and he gets a double. So he's always looking to find the crazy pass. He probably had like three no-look pass assists in this game to go along with just throwing some crazy passes to the perimeter. It is amazing just watching him play. He's 19 years old doing this crap. This is something you don't, you don't even see this from the best of the best. Like, Shea Gilgis Alexander does some of the stuff Maladon does, but I don't think he's as risky. Like, he doesn't always do these no-look passes. Maladon does it at 19. He puts the ball right where you need it to be, and he's that spark you kind of, you need. And I don't know if he's going to continue to be like a starter, I think he probably should, though. I think whether Hill comes back or not, just let him play at the starting shooting guard. Like, he is going wild. And whenever he plays pretty similar to what SGA is doing, but a little bit more lax on, like, attacking and, you know, closing out the uh, backdoor cuts, I'd probably say. I think that's kind of something that SGA tends to do since he ISOs so much. Like, he can't get more people cramming down though. Maladon allows it, and I'd say that's the big difference. Maladon's the catch-and-shoot player. Think of what SGA did um, in the season, last season with us. Like, he just sits there when he needs to be the playmaker. He'll do it for you. He does it with a smile on his face. Great guy. He had a uh, post-game interview with uh, Nick Gallo, actually. He's just crediting, like, everyone helping out. So, you'd love to see that as well. Just seeing him grow is great. Like, he went from dropping like eight, seven, eight threes to now doing this. What's next for him? I don't know. I think he's already had like a five steal game already. So what does that leave you? Rebounds, blocks, shoot, plus minus if you want to count that. Like, it's wild. It's wild. And the fact you get him with the 34th pick is even crazier. That Al Horford thing, the Al Horford haul we got is just, it's so, it's so cool. Like, we get a first round pick. I think it's like 2024 or 2025, but the protections are really light on it, and it continues from like year to year, so we're going to get the first round pick from Philly. You'll also get Maladon out of this, and Horford may be an asset. What do we give him? Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson? Throw in Vincent Poirier, maybe? Who cares, man? That's an absolute massive, massive uh, gathering of assets that we got here, and Maladon... He's going to be a future player for them. I don't know I don't know what's going to happen for Green and Ferguson, but yeah, I don't think they have as much longevity. I think if Daryl Morey had this one back, probably would go after someone like Maladon. Already have Maxi, but I don't know. Every team should want Teo Maladon. Someone like this, perfect piece to kind of just mold with. And hell, in a redraft, he could probably just be a lottery pick right now. Just the way he's just been performing. So, so great to watch. I don't know if he's going to continue to be like such a high ball handler, but he pretty much played the primary ball handling role in this game, and he showed why, you know, he could be a real dude. I don't know if he's going to be a starter forever, but if he keeps playing like this, hell yeah. Hell yeah, he can. Love to, I love Teo, man. Love Teo. Around him, though, I mean, Shea cannot sleep on this man. He still had the team high in points. 24 did it like seamlessly i didn't even realize he had 24 until i checked the box score 
it was all about some of these other players, but SGA, as mentioned, he wasn't passing it a ton, just four on the game. Just He just wanted to shoot. He wanted to play like last season's version of himself. Went nine for 18 from the field. But the main thing that I saw, just a breakout from three. He's done so well doing step backs, and he just kept taking players off the dribble and just draining them. Three of four on deep range shots. If he can just keep this up, he's going to be one of the best point guards in the league. Like the driving game's already there. Piece it with this shooting game. You got you got a top ten guy who, you know, could be a, an all star for a very very long time. And yeah, the the shot looks a little bit unorthodox, but it doesn't matter because he gets the shot off like easily every single time. So I'm I'm totally fine with it. And once he goes in, he's still looking to pass. And one of the dudes that, you know, he, he was getting the ball a lot off of SJ, it was Lou Dort again. He hit that big game winner, didn't want to toss that three-pointer out of his repertoire. So he had four threes to go on nine attempts, gets 19 points on the game, and he still was driving in and getting to the line. So penetration, three-point shooting, too easy. Teams are sleeping on him, like, it's so crazy to me that people aren't taking Lou Dort seriously from down there, and it's a blessing in disguise because it just leads to so many good looks. The reputation hasn't been built. It's going to eventually be there, and that's going to suck, but that also means SGA is going to have a lot more pathways to the basket, so it works both ways. This game, they want to test him. He just totally crushed them, and then on defense, he still gives you the minutes you want. Got 32 minutes in this ball game. But how about Darius Baisley just coming into his own again, man? And I was questioning, like, the Baisley-Collins matchup in the preview. Like, I was wondering, John Collins, bigger, athletic, gets rebounds a ton, is crazy around the basket, and he can shoot. So this is like a Julius Randle-Baisley matchup almost, you could say. And Baisley, I mean, he put up a good fight. I'd say he almost, like, won it. With the role that he was suited, he probably did. Because John Collins, he led the game with 25 points. Had 8 rebounds to go along with it, though. So, it was all around just going in on Baisley. However, the thing is, he didn't win the rebound battle on Baisley. And John Collins was the number 1 option. Baisley was like option number 5. And he still puts up really good stats. 18 points, 12 rebounds. That gives him his 7th double-double of the season and the way he was getting his points was really fun like he couldn't get it from three but it's cool one of five from there think he got the jitters he was just always right around the rim though i think he had like four or five dunks in this game and he had seven field goals that went in on twos so like over half of them came on slams and the final one the kill shot was just his posterizer on john collins he goes flying from the left side jumps like i don't know five feet maybe guy cranks it back just gets right around him and is still able to get on latch on the rim and hammer it down he's so good at driving in and he just didn't want to do that in the past games he's gonna have a big burst of energy heading into tomorrow's matchup against the Nuggets. I mean, he was struggling against Jermichael Green. Maybe this is a bit of a revenge tour against him. He goes up against one of the best power forwards in Collins. Beast. Keep it going, Baisley. I mean, we have been waiting to see this from him for a little bit. 
he is a basketball, um, fantasy basketball guy that like, like, I don't know if he's a keep him on your team regardless or drop him. I've always kept him on my team because he always comes back and balls out like this. He just, he keeps making every doubter look like idiots, man. And that's what I love about Darius Baisley. Like he always keeps at it when he's not at his best. Yeah, he does kind of look out of sync, but when he's in rhythm, you kind of just sense that he can be something special. So I loved him. I think the only other double-digit score was Mike Muscala with 10, and Isaiah Roby. He actually had some no-look passes to go along with his seven points. So very, very great game from them. I mean, they're going to be going up against Denver. So yeah, I mean, you're going to get Al Horford back because they wanted to rest him in efforts to see him go up against one of the best centers in the entire league. So I kind of get what they're going with there. You don't want Jokic on Roby for an extended amount of time. So test it out. See what happens here. How is Ty Jerome going to respond? How is Maladon going to respond? How does everyone just kind of work together here? Because, I mean, they changed the way they played on their second unit, and it looked even better than before. So I love it. There's going to be a blue game too, as I've said, against the blue coats. Get you with that one. Get you with the Nuggets one. Hope you all stick around for tomorrow's episode because I will make sure to bring you up to date on that. Then you got a three-day gap. So that means you guys are going to get some of the one-off stories that I've kind of stashed around waiting to talk to you guys about. So I'm very excited about that. Hope you are too. Other than that though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening and I'll talk to you all next time. See ya.